We have no control over the seed of the word once it is planted. We must rest on the pillow of God's sovereignty to trust that a harvest will come. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Mark chapter 4 once again. Mark chapter 4. And this morning, Lord willing, we will conclude our discussion of the parables given by our Lord here in Mark 4. When you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, and I'll pick up in verse 21. I'll read down through verse 34. We uh, began looking at this passage last time, so we'll review a little bit, and then we'll pick up. The primary focus this morning will be verses 26 through 34, but let me begin reading in verse 21. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, "As a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand... For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and it becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the blessed word of our God. Please be seated as we ask for his help this morning. Our Father, we approach this text with humility and we approach this text with urgency, desiring to understand your word, knowing that can only come about by the power of your blessed Holy Spirit. So please illuminate this passage for our ears. Help us to have ears to hear what your spirit would teach us through the words of our Savior and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus opened up here in Mark chapter 4 with the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower. And we saw that that really was 
in many ways, the most important parable that Jesus ever gave. Jesus was clear in this passage as recorded by Mark that the parable of the sower was the key to understanding all the other parables that Jesus gave. For example, in verse 13, he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Referring to the parable of the sower. And then he asked this question, How then will you understand all of the parables? So Jesus is explaining to the disciples, as we saw in times past, the meaning of the parables. A parable, a parabole, um, is a, a Greek word that comes from two Greek words, para, which means alongside, and balo, which means to throw down. So a parable is an illustration, a metaphor, a simile, a picture, if you will, that is thrown down to compare it to some great spiritual reality. We've mentioned the fact that parables were not unique to Jesus. Jesus uniquely created and crafted his own parables, but the concept of a parable was not unique. In fact, there are many examples in the Old Testament of this. And I want you, as we begin this morning, to turn back with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 9. There is a parable that many of you probably are not familiar with. It's Jotham's parable of what we might call the thorn bush. And here in Judges chapter 9, it is a parable of judgment. Jotham was the youngest son of Gideon. And he stands here on Mount Gerizim, a former mountain of blessing, when the law of God came and it became a place of cursing. Because Jotham, or Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, is rebuking Abimelech, another son of their father Gideon. Abimelech was made to be king over the Shechemites. And Jotham stands on Mount Gerizim and he pronounces judgment on Abimelech and upon the Shechemites in the parable of the trees. If you pick up with me in verse 7, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, here's the parable, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over other trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Verse 14, Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us, the thorn bush. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. A very interesting parable, and we might question the meaning of it, but in basic understanding of what Jotham is saying is he is saying that the olive tree and the fig tree and the vine represent useful trees common in Israel. And the people are going to these trees to ask them if they will reign over them to provide shade for them, and they all refuse. The qualified trees refuse to be leaders, but the one that is unqualified, the one that is inferior, namely the bramble, the thorn bush, says, oh yes, I can do this. I will be king over you. And that bramble is to be representative of Abimelech. We learn from this, from Jotham's parable, that honorable men are often reluctant to serve in places of leadership. And that is those people who are actually more qualified than the person who is disqualified, who wants to be a leader, because the person not qualified to be a leader is usually one that is going to abuse his or her authority. And that is exactly what Jotham is getting at in this parable. Here the bramble is a, a useless tree compared to the fig tree, compared to the olive tree, compared to the vine, compared to a cedar. And yet Abimelech is the one that becomes a leader. Jesus would be very, very clear that a raw lust for power, rooted in selfish ambition, was extraordinarily sinful. For instance, he said this 
In Mark chapter 10, he called to himself the disciples and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I say all of this to say that when we're speaking about the parables, we're speaking about the kingdom of God, and make no mistake about it, when we're speaking about the kingdom of God, we are speaking about power, and we are speaking about authority, such as of the likes of which no one has ever seen. And there is only one king, that is Christ. But he uses the subjects of his kingdom to advance his kingdom in the world. The parables, therefore, help us to see the optimism that Christians should have about the rule of Christ's kingdom in the world. But the rule of Christ's kingdom in the world is not about the glory of man. It is about the glory of God. It is not about the authority of man. It is about the authority of God. And such becomes very plain in the parables that we will look at this morning. Now, in verses 21 through 34, as we said last week, there are four fruit-bearing activities of true citizens of Christ's kingdom. Four activities that citizens of Christ's kingdom will be committed to. Jesus is launching off of his parable of the sower, where some of the seed falls on good soil, and it bears fruit, verse 20, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And Jesus is saying that the good soil represents citizens of my kingdom who receive the word of the gospel and it bears fruit in their lives. What does that fruit look like? It looks like four fruit-bearing activities. And we saw, number one, that it will involve the proclamation of the message of the kingdom. Verses 21 and 22, he launches into another parable and says, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Of course not. Verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. He's now using the imagery of light. He's saying that he is the lamp who has come into the world and that as the lamp, he is to be placed on the lampstand. The citizens of the kingdom are to put Christ on the lampstand. We are to proclaim the message of light, the message of the gospel. We are to shine as lights in this dark world so that people will glorify the Father in heaven. And we mentioned Psalm 119, 105, that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's critical that we understand that our responsibility in proclaiming the message of the kingdom involves, number one, proclaiming the law of God because the law of God exposes sin in men and women and boys and girls' hearts. But then we follow that up with proclaiming the light of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, that Jesus Christ has come into the world. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That is the light of the church. That is the message that the church preaches. They preach the light of the gospel, and they live forth the law of the Word of God. And these things cannot be separated. You cannot merely preach the message of the kingdom and live contrary to the law of God. And you cannot merely live the law of God and not have the gospel. One is moralism and one is antinomianism. You preach the law and you preach the gospel as a solution to the law and man as a sinner condemned under the law. That is the light of the good news and that light is to go out into all of the world. But the citizens of God's kingdom bear fruit not only by proclaiming the message of the kingdom, but secondly, by pondering the meaning of the kingdom. In verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We simply noted here that one of the fruit-bearing qualities of the citizens of God's kingdom is that we take seriously God's word. We take seriously the truth of God. We take seriously pondering the parables of Jesus specifically, the truth of God's word generally, the gospel, the depths of the gospel. The more that we know the gospel, the more effective we will be in the kingdom of God. The more we will have answers for the world who asks questions. 
the more that we will shine forth the light of Christ. And there is a word of judgment here, for to the one who has the truth, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There is a sense in which we can become ineffective in the kingdom when doctrine and theology is not the foundation of what motivates us to evangelize and what motivates us to serve the interests of the king. It is our knowledge of the grandeur and the glory of God, the depth of the gospel that will cause worship in a life of service to the Lord. And that really takes us to the third fruit-bearing activity. Number one, God's citizens are to be absorbed in the proclamation of the message of the kingdom. Number two, pondering about the meaning of the kingdom. But now number three, we need to be absorbed in preoccupation with the ministry of the kingdom. Preoccupation with the ministry of the kingdom. And we see this in verses 26 through 29. In these verses is a parable that you will not find in any of the other Gospels. Mark alone gives this parable. Verse 26, he said to them, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The parable begins with a certain activity, very similar to the parable of the sower. Here in verse 26, he says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. This is returning to the farming analogy to say that the work of the kingdom of God is like farming, a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Not really a glamorous profession to have, a hard-working profession, but not really one that comes with glamour and glitz. But the farmer must scatter the seed, otherwise there is no crop, and if there is no crop, there is no business, and if there is no business, there is no food and there is no living. The ministry of God's kingdom is therefore a lot like its king. Jesus Christ was hidden in humility, was he not? The the Bible teaches us the humility of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. We sing about it at Christmas. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. God was hidden in human flesh. There's a humility about the king, and therefore there's a humility about the nature of the ministry of the kingdom. There's this scattering of the seed. That is the image that Jesus chooses to use. Now we know from times past that the scattering of the seed represents the dissemination of the Word of God, specifically the gospel. And it is the responsibility of all Christians to disseminate the gospel. Disseminating the Word begins with preachers and preaching, but it doesn't end there. It's the church collectively, through their support, through their prayers, through their gifting, through their giving, through their witnessing that share in the dissemination of the Word. But what I want you to see about this certain activity is that the advancement of God's kingdom is pictured by the basic and routine method of a farmer scattering seed. Not glamorous, not glitzy, but absolutely necessary. And this certain activity that we are to be preoccupied, the dissemination of the word, then continues with a certain mystery. The certain activity, verse 26, is followed by a certain mystery. Verse 27, Jesus says, The farmer sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. There's a certain mystery to how this occurs. The farmer works, but then the farmer waits. This requires faith, does it not? It says that he sleeps night and day. In other words, he scatters the seed and then he does what? Nothing. He waits so that mysteriously and even imperceptibly the seed sprouts and grows. And in fact, verse 27 says the farmer doesn't even know how these processes work. Because it's the seed of the Word, not the saint of the church, that has the power to give life. That is the point. Just as the farmer does the hard work of scattering the seed, but then after that his hands are tied, he has to wait for the natural processes of germination to take place, so too it is with the Christian 
in the ministry of the kingdom in disseminating the word. The sower works, he sleeps, and then he waits. This is his routine. He plants the seed, he sleeps, he waits. He wakes up the next day, he plants the seed, he waits, he sleeps. That's all he can do. He can't force the seed to germinate. He cannot force the seed to germinate. That's Jesus' point. Now, he can cover the seed with straw so the birds of the air don't come and eat it. Um, He can pull up the weeds so that when something sprouts, it doesn't choke it out, the thorns among the weeds. He can fertilize the soil. He can water the soil. But I assure you, no matter how much he talks to the seed, he cannot raise life from that seed. He must rest and then leave the rest to God who works sovereignly. As William Hendrickson says, the reign of God over hearts and lives with consequent influence in every sphere is mysterious in its growth. That is true in the physical realm of farming and in the spiritual realm of kingdom growth. We have no control over the seed of the word once it is planted. We must rest on the pillow of God's sovereignty to trust that a harvest will come. But until it comes, we are preoccupied in the planting of the seed and in waiting. The power of evangelism is not in the people, it's in the seed itself. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3.6? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here in this parable. Paul is saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but basically, I didn't do anything. God did everything. Jesus told Nicodemus that new birth through the power of the Holy Spirit is like the wind. We don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So Jesus says, is everyone who is born of the Spirit. A very, very simple parable that is identified with a certain activity, verse 26, and a certain mystery, verse 27, but praise God, there is a certain potency, verse 28. Jesus goes on to say, the earth produces by itself First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Now, the earth produces by itself is a very interesting phrase because the Greek word used in this phrase is automatos. And you guessed it, that's where we get the the English word automatic. In fact, the only other occurrence of this word is found in in Acts chapter 12 and verse 10. And this is probably, I suppose, a good illustration. When they passed by the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, automatically, automatos. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left them. This is Peter's rescue from the jail. The gate immediately, automatically opened by the sovereign power of God. And here Jesus says, the farmer doesn't know how this works, but the earth produces by itself automatically something secretly and mysteriously happens so that the seed in the ground has more power than the saints on the ground. Glory does not go to man in the ministry of the kingdom and the dissemination of the word. There is power in the seed of the word. That's what causes germination. And so the process is, verse 28, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Now this doesn't mean that the farmer is apathetic and lazy because he knows the power is not in and of himself, but in and of the seed. He knows the natural processes of germination and sprouting have to take place, but he's not lazy in scattering the seed. He can control his effort, though he can't control his outcome. And so he labors and he toils. And Jesus' point here is that a true citizen of his kingdom will work that same way. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for apathy or laziness. The Holy Spirit will see to it that the seed of his word will secretly perpetuate into a harvest of souls. We hear the wind of the Spirit, we see its effects, but we're not let in on the secret processes of that. God controls the growth of the seed sovereignly in bringing new life. And He does this with certainty. He does this with certainty. Salvation has an element of certainty to it when the seed is scattered. Jesus put it this way. I know you're familiar with it. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is certainty to who will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ when the church is faithful. 
God causes the seed to germinate into life. And it comes with certainty. It also comes powerfully. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 that our Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It wasn't about the person that gave it. It was about the power behind the word. God causes the seed to germinate into life certainly and powerfully. Also imperishably. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word of God produces life certainly and powerfully, imperishably and mercifully. Titus 3.5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying the seed has the power. Now, let's dig into this a little bit more deeper. Verse 26 makes it clear that this parable illustrates the kingdom of God. And I want to say something that I will repeat this morning two or three times. The kingdom of God is not merely the reign of God over specific souls and individuals. The reign of God is a reign that will be over every sphere of this world. The reign of God needs to manifest itself within our families. The reign of God needs to manifest itself within our churches. The reign of God needs to manifest itself within our workplaces, within the government, within education, within the arts, within literature, within science, within commerce. So the church has all hands on deck for the conversion of sinners because Christians understand that Christ is already ruling and reigning. Christians recognize Christ's power as King. Let me give you a couple of examples. Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer these words in John 17. He says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh. That was before His crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. For all intents and purposes, authority had already been given to Jesus because of the certainty of what was getting ready to transpire. He would be king over all. Or Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. He is the king who is ruling. Or Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Throughout the New Testament, the Bible does not say that someday Jesus will be king. No, it says that Jesus is already the King of kings and the Lord of lords, reigning supreme over all things. We are, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to give glory to our only God, as Jude says, our Savior through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. So if we want the rule of Christ to expand, we recognize Christ's power. Secondly, we reorient our perspective. Everything we do in life, everything we do in life is focused on the planting of the seed of the gospel. Paul says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. So the focus of the church, the focus of the individual Christian, has to do with the dissemination of the gospel rooted in the reality that we recognize Christ's power, His rule over all things. We reorient our perspective to live in light of that. And then number three, we respond with persistence. Daniel 12.3 says, Those who turn many to righteousness are like the stars forever and ever. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day. Proverbs 11, verse 30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. So this is the labor of Christians. Trusting in the providence of God, working hard, but having faith 
resting on the pillow of God's sovereignty, sleeping, rising, working, planting, waiting for the process to automatically, sovereignly, mysteriously take place in which a harvest will come. And this is critical. It is a process. Verse 28 again says, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Sometimes we cannot capture what God is doing. We plant the seed, we pray, and then all of a sudden one day we begin to see fruit in the lives of our children. What is that? That's the secret mysteries of the providence of God working in them. We don't know the moment they were regenerated. Many people here don't know the moment they were saved. We know that God does that, but we're not after immediate results. The kingdom of God, the ministry of the kingdom of God is not about immediate results. We plant, we sow the word, we rest on the pillow of God's providence. This is the way holiness in our lives work. It is a process. This is how the evangelization of the world occurs. It is a process. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. We plant, we rest, we plant, we rest, we wait, we trust in faith. You know, it is amazing to me how often in my driveway, out of nowhere, weeds find a way of popping up. And I have a theory that probably can be easily disproved, but it's at least possible, it's only a theory, that at night under the cover of darkness, representatives from the HOA come into my driveway and plant seeds there and water it and fertilize it. But I doubt that's what's happening. They do that maybe so that they can find me later for the weeds that they see. They don't do that. Because the power is in the seed itself. It's not in me. It's not in anyone else. New life will pop up unexpectedly, imperceptibly, mysteriously. And listen, that is exactly what Jesus is driving at here. When we're talking about spiritual growth as individuals, when we're talking about the growth of His kingdom, it is almost imperceptible. It is mysterious. It is providential. It is a process, let me put it to you this way, that doesn't come with the flash of a lightning bolt, but with the normal business as usual, everyday faithfulness of Christians, planting the Word, planting the seed, waiting and watching for God to work. In fact, Jesus makes a very interesting statement that I know you're familiar with The Gospel of Luke records this for us, and this really puts all things in perspective. Speaking about the coming of the kingdom, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Quit focusing on the physical, the immediate results. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is in the midst of you. That is to say, it is in your hearts. It is something you can't always see. In fact, it sometimes feels as if God isn't at work, but He is at work. The natural, what we could say, supernatural processes of Christian farming are taking place behind the scenes so that the gospel is advancing and God's kingdom is expanding. Go back to that analogy that Jesus gave in verses 21 and 22 about the lamp that shouldn't be put under a basket or under a bed. You bring it into a dark house so it lights up the whole room. And throughout Scripture, it is the light of Christians in this world that is to shine. Proverbs 4.18 says that the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. There's a process of brighter and brighter and brightest until the full day, the end of time. And throughout the whole of church history, we keep seeing wings being added on of more saints, heart to heart, community to community, nation to nation, continent to continent. We see the full power and the reign of God across His globe. Christians are to be in the ministry of the kingdom. Lay person or clergy matters not because you're in it for the long game, not the short game. Let me give you an illustration. Football season is coming up. Many of you are excited about that. 
if you are in the first quarter and you are inside your own 20-yard line and it is fourth and 30 and you decide to go for it, you have made a grave mistake. Because if you don't make it, and it's more than likely that you will not make it, you will turn the ball over on downs and give the ball to your opponent right in front of your goal line in which they will capitalize and score. It's better to play the long game. What does that mean? It means you punt the ball so that you get better field position so you can work your way down the field to win the game. Well, the Christian should play the long game. Uh, The Christian should not be in the ministries of the church for the short game, for the immediate results, because immediate results and the desire for that might result in squandered opportunities, not building for the future. The, The power is not in us being able to see on the ground what is happening. God is working behind the scenes. The power is not within us. It's in the Word of God. What does the Old Testament say? And the New Testament repeats it. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. The power is in the seed of the Word of God. We plant the seed. We preach the Gospel. We preach God's Word. And the Word of God will produce salvation. We have been born again, Peter says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So let me go back to Jotham's parable. In the ministries of the kingdom, it is not about competition, it is not about power, it is not about man authority. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I alluded to this earlier, but I, I think I need to drill down on this just a little bit more. There was competition that was occurring in the ministry. And, and the reason that it was occurring is because people in the church had too much confidence in themselves and not enough confidence in the power of the Word and the glory of God. So Paul chides the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4. He says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, Paul says, you are, not, are you not being merely human? You're thinking in earthly human terms as if Paul and Apollos have something to do with what happens in the kingdom of God. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? I'll tell you, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the growth. Verse 7, here's the key. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. But we are all God's fellow workers. We are God's field. Notice that language. I think Paul is borrowing the farming language here. We plant the seed of the gospel in God's field. But verse 10, it's according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation, someone else is building upon it, but each one takes care how he builds upon it. Now changing the metaphor to a building. God is the power behind the seed of the word, not man. But you look today at many churches and the confidence is in man, not God. Man-made strategies on how to get more people into the church. Man-centered techniques on how to get people to do what you want. Man-manipulated atmospheres to make people feel like they're being ministered to. Man-fabricated methods of making the church more palatable to the world. Now what's the problem with all of this? The problem is that the church has too much confidence in man and not enough confidence in God. What does the farmer do? He plants the seed, he goes to bed, he rests in God's sovereignty, and he waits for God to work. It's a business-as-usual process. People will say that's boring. You've got to wake up every morning and just be faithful to the Lord. That's what God has called all of us to do. That's what faithful ministry in the kingdom looks like. It's not that we're lazy in our evangelism, lazy in our toil. You know, Paul certainly wasn't. You remember the Philippian jailer was scared out of his wits. He says, what must I do to be saved? Paul doesn't look at him and say, well, do nothing. God's got this. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved and also your household. There was urgency. Paul could not convert the guy, but Paul could communicate the gospel. In this case, it was an immediate conversion. But nine times out of ten, when we witness, it won't be immediate conversions. We're to be preoccupied with faithfulness, and God will bring the fruitfulness. 
You know, as Reformed people, we talk all the time about the fourth commandment, honoring the Sabbath. I think it's the most violated commandment, not because of what you do and don't do on Sunday, but because behind that commandment is a bigger commandment that has to do with Sabbath rest in God's sovereignty. Resting that God will work in His kingdom and in His people. God will draw His elect into Himself. God will grow the church. God will build the church. Why doesn't the church do this? Why doesn't the church have this ministry? Why doesn't the church do that? Why isn't the church bigger? Those are all the wrong questions. You know, when we started the church, one of the blessings has been seeing God work, seeing God bring people, seeing who God will bring, seeing who God will save, seeing how God will use this church as a voice for the gospel in the community. And as we planted the church, we were forced to think long-term, forced to think generationally. I, I remember even in designing this pulpit and having this pulpit built, I was not thinking about, will this pulpit last uh, till next week or maybe for five or ten years? No, this pulpit needs to last generation after generation after generation after generation. It's just a symbol, but it speaks forth the value of what we believe in investing in the long game eternally, leaving God's sovereignty to work. So we cannot control the outcome. We control our effort. We take the seed, we scatter it. God does the rest. We take the light, we shine it. God lets His light shine everywhere. One commentator says, it is because of His will that the spiritual seed, the word or message of the gospel, asserts its increasingly powerful influence upon the hearts of men and thus upon society in general. And that's exactly what Jesus is driving at. Our preoccupation in the ministry of the kingdom involves a certain activity that's scattering the seed, a certain mystery, God is behind it, a certain potency, God will make it work. And all of this is because there is a certain victory. Notice verse 29. Jesus says, But when the grain is ripe, at once He puts in the sickle, that is the farmer, because the harvest has come over and over and over again in Scripture. Christians are compared to farmers. You remember Paul's words to Timothy. First, he told Timothy, we're in a war, we're soldiers. He said, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And then Paul says that Timothy was like an athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. But then Paul told Timothy that he was like a farmer. Second Timothy Two, six. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Here Jesus is using that imagery of a harvest. And He's saying the harvest will come. When the grain is ripe, verse 29, then the sickle is put in and the harvest has come. Now, admittedly, this is, I think, apocalyptic language drawn from Joel chapter 3. And there is a sense in which there is a great harvest that will take place at the end. But don't miss this. This is very critical. We are living in the last days now. Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is reigning now. And so as Jesus reigns, there will be seasons of drought and there will be seasons of harvest. What are we to do? We're to wait for God's sovereignty to work. We're to wait for God's sovereignty to work in His timing. We aren't to put deadlines on God's schedule. We wait for Him. We are faithful Sometimes this requires patience and suffering. James tells us, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We know God is at work. The ministry of the Word, the ministry of the dissemination of the Word, will be despised and scoffed at by the world. It will be doubted and segregated in parts of the visible church. But we know that the Word is working. 
Isaiah 55, God's word will not return void to him. Some will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 2 Peter 3, 4. But Jesus is saying the harvest will come. The kingdom comes with spiritual faith, not physical fighting. The kingdom comes by our humble faithfulness, not worldly fanfare. The kingdom comes by a seed, not by a sword. And let me just say this before we move on to the final parable. That there was a group of people, namely the zealots, who tried to establish God's kingdom in the second century by forcing God's kingdom through revolution. We read about the zealots, a sect of Judaism. You read in Josephus' Antiquities, started by a man named Judas from Galilee. Their theology was rooted in apocalyptic tea-leaf reading. That's the best way to describe it. Tedious observance of the law. They had the traditional theology of the Pharisees. They had the political theory of anarchy that essentially did this. It fueled a rebellion among Maccabean freedom fighters who freed ancient Palestine from the Seleucids in the 2nd century B.C., 200 years before Christ. They were still around when Christ came. They were fighting with a sword, not with a seed. And you know, there was an old form of post-millennialism, that's an eschatological position, that tended to focus on the rigorous observance of God's law to usher in the kingdom of God. You may have heard of this, it's called the Christian Reconstructionism. But there is a new variety of post-millennialism that doesn't focus so much on the law of God, but on the sowing of the seed of the gospel. That this is a war of words, not swords. Let me tell you the tragedy of the zealots in trying to establish God's kingdom without the message of salvation. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected Christ. They wanted a kingdom without Christ. Therefore, they wanted power and authority unto themselves, just like Abimelech and Jotham's parable. The kingdom of God is not about our glory. It's about God's glory. And what resulted was in A.D. 66... The zealots revolted against Rome. God raised up the Romans to crush the zealots, laid siege to Jerusalem, tore down the temple, ransacked the temple, took captives away. God did in A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, exactly what He did in the Old Testament, raising up the Babylonians to take Israel into captivity. That was God's judgment on Israel. They wanted a kingdom without a king. They wanted a kingdom ushered in by rigorous obedience to the law with no preaching of the gospel. And that sort of thing, Jesus says, cannot occur. You preach the gospel, you sow the seeds, you watch God work. Our faith is revealed in how we pray. We are to pray, what did Jesus say? Thy kingdom come. And we aren't to leave the last part out. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. We pray that His kingdom will come on earth, on earth. So we work instead of worry. We're marked with conviction rather than compromise. No glory to man, only glory to God. We walk by faith. We don't look at immediate results. So we're looking at four fruit-bearing activities of the true citizens of God's kingdom. As a citizens, we bear fruit When we are absorbed in the proclamation of the message of the kingdom, verses 21 and 22. Secondly, pondering about the meaning of the kingdom, verses 23 through 25. We just saw verses 26 through 29, preoccupation with the ministry of the kingdom. And now I've been pointing to it all along. Number four, we are to be marked by the fruit of patience and the manifestation of the kingdom. We've been talking about patience, haven't we? This is what Jesus is driving at. And in verses 30 through 34, really verses 30 through 32, you have perhaps the most important parable Jesus ever gave. And this is what he says in short in this parable. He tells us that Christian ministry is an industry that will never go belly up. It will have eternal ramifications. What does Paul say? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Have patience for the manifestation of God's kingdom. Notice how it begins, verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? He's using the device of 
Old Testament rabbis of asking a question to ignite attention. What can we compare the kingdom of God to? Remember the kingdom of God? This is critical, I'll say it again. Has more to do with just the salvation of individual souls. This is not just going out on a crusade to try to pluck brands from the fire. This entails the expansion of God's kingdom in every category of the world. Family and church and politics and arts and literature, all of it. Begins with the proclamation of the gospel, but the goal of God's kingdom is not merely to rule in men's hearts, it's to rule in the world. So again, William Hendrickson puts it this way, the kingdom of God, no matter how small and insignificant it may appear at first, will continue to expand and to become increasingly a blessing to all who enter into it. And that is exactly Jesus' point. Notice this important parable. What are we going to compare the kingdom of God to? Here it is, and it's going to require patience and seeing the manifestation of this kingdom. Verse 31, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, back to sowing and farming, is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Now, a lot could be said here. I'll just point this out. He doesn't compare the kingdom of God to a cedar tree, does he? He points out a mustard seed. Now, technically speaking, this wasn't the smallest of all the seeds, but proverbially speaking, it was. Proverbially. Rabbis, people during the day, when wanting to compare the smallness of something to something else, they would say it's as small as a mustard seed. There were other seeds that were smaller, but this one proverbially was the smallest. In fact, it was microscopic. It was a microscopic seed, but it would grow into a tree as high as 15 feet. So Jesus says in verse 32, it may be small, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. It puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus doesn't point it out in the parable, but we read in history that birds would actually find small black seeds in the pods among the branches. So they would not only find shade, but they would find food. Here's the interesting thing. This seed, which is so small that birds could swoop down and swallow it whole. Think about the parable of the sower. The seed that falls on the hard ground, the birds come down and swallow. This seed, which is so small that a bird could just scoop it up in its mouth and swallow it without even chewing or sucking on it, would be a seed that would grow into a large tree to protect those same little birds from storms and from the heat of nature. What's the point? Here's the point. God's kingdom has small beginnings with big results that will bless the world. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever planted a tree? And if you've ever planted a tree, you know this. It doesn't grow overnight. It takes patience. What is all this talk about mustard seeds growing into trees larger than all the garden plants so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade? To make this simple point, this parable is also a prophecy. It is also a prophecy. And what is the prophecy? Here's the prophecy. Jesus said on another occasion, This gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But notice the process. This gospel will be proclaimed to all nations, and not until it is proclaimed to all nations will the end come. People today speak about the imminent return of Christ. Is that really true? Has the gospel reached every nation? Has the gospel reached every people group? Has the gospel reached every sphere of society to influence politics and arts and literature and education and family and the church? I don't think so. The manifestation of God's kingdom requires patience. John MacArthur says this, and I quote, What to them seemed hopelessly small would spread an influence until it permeated the earth for centuries. That which was weak and frail under divine power was the beginning of the unstoppable and eternal completion of God's redemptive plan through the church to gather the elect to glory. 
And that's true. It started off as a little flock. Jesus called His people a little flock. But Revelation 7-9 says that a great multitude, that no number could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. This is a parable of optimism, of the growth of the kingdom in the world, the advancement of the gospel. Think about it. Mark is writing. He's a protege of Peter. But Mark is writing to primarily Gentile Christians in a Roman world where suffering and persecution are rising. And Peter is saying, look, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's going to look like it's going to be swallowed up by the flocks of Satan's birds. But it's not going to be. It will survive. It will expand and end up being a blessing in the world. But a tree doesn't grow overnight. And indeed, what happened? Well, what happened is, one day the Roman Empire, which sought to destroy it, found shelter under its shade. We wouldn't agree with everything that Constantine did, but what we would affirm is the fact that you had there, at least outwardly, the attempt to establish an outward Christian kingdom. 200 years after Jesus said these words, because the kingdom of God will be built. But a tree does not grow overnight. Now there is an interesting account in Zechariah chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. But in Zechariah chapter 4, there's a man by the name of Zerubbabel. You're familiar with him. He returned from captivity and he was the primary builder of the second temple. In Zechariah chapter 4, God promises Zerubbabel that the power of his spirit will see to it that the temple will be complete, regardless of the obstacles, regardless of the opposition. And God says to Zerubbabel these words. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This will happen, listen to this, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. And then in verse 10, speaking about the comparative smallness of this temple with Solomon's temple and all the people complaining, God says to him, for who hath despised the day of small things. Who hath despised the day of small things? And then God says, for those will one day rejoice. It is easy to despise the small things. It is easy to think that God's plan to advance the gospel, to build His church, isn't working. It's easy to be pessimistic. It's easy to be critical. It's easy to look and say, I don't see immediate results. Why aren't there 5,000 people here this morning instead of 50? It's easy to say, well, something must be broken. Something must need tweaked. No, the more you ask those questions and the more you begin to mess with the ministry of the church in that way, the more you reveal your lack of faith in a sovereign God who says, be faithful to plant the seed and someday that seed will grow into a large tree. Its branches will be so big that the kingdoms of the world will seek its shade. Do you have faith like that? Or are you so tunnel-visioned in your outlook that you can't see beyond the immediate results? The expansion of God's kingdom is a Christian takeover. And it's happening. It's happening. Those regenerated by God through Christ are placed in Adam. We're united to Adam, the second Adam, Romans chapter 5. And we assume the task the first Adam abandoned. What was that? Adam in the garden failed to exercise dominion, didn't he? To subdue the earth. Instead of crushing the serpent's skull, who opposed God's law, instead of fighting that serpent to its death, he listened to the serpent's voice. He allowed that serpent to entice Eve. The whole world fell into sin. Is that exercising dominion over the garden God gave? I think not. So God sends a second Adam who dies for this fallen race, dies for his elect people. All of those in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are placed in the second Adam. And now, in and through Christ, we exercise dominion. The expansion of God's kingdom. How does it happen? This way. We preach the gospel, we live forth the law of God. It's business as usual. Preach the gospel, live forth the law of God. It's every Christian doing that. 
And over a period of time, this mustard seed blossoms into a tree that influences the world for good. This is not preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's a terrible motto. Terrible motto. This is preaching the gospel. But it's also living forth the law of God to shine in this dark world. This requires patience. This involves commitment. Not seeking individual salvations alone and immediate results, but trusting in God to reform this world for Christ. And what are the areas of reform? Let me mention a few of them to you before we close. Number one, we need to reform the family. Husbands and dads need to give priority to their leadership in the home. Men need to provide, protect their wives. Women need to be helpmates. Children need to obey their parents. Family worship needs to be a priority. Catechizing needs to be a must. You're not going to impact the kingdom of God apart from reforming the family. Number two, reforming the church. This isn't simply a place we come. It has to be a place we're part of. We're willing to be inconvenienced by one another. We're willing to serve one another, not from selfish ambition and jealousy and competition, but to the glory of God. There will be no expansion of the kingdom apart from a reformation of the family and the church. Number three, education. Public schools spew secularism. They shove it down kids' throats. So what does that mean for Christians? Well, it might mean you homeschool your kids, or it might mean you send them to a Christian school, or it might mean that as a Christian, you get in the public schools and you teach the truth to those kids who aren't hearing it. It means we fund the work of seminaries being established, Christian universities, because the public school system is broken with the secular ideologies of our time. Number four, we reform this world to the power of Christ by political action among Christians. We need more Christians in government, not less. We need more Christians in the military, not less. We need legislation that conforms the laws of the land to God's morality because there is only one true king and there is only one true law. Number five, we need public servants, more Christian policemen, more Christian doctors, more Christian lawyers, more men who own businesses, who practice biblical ethics. They pay a fair wage. They operate according to integrity. We need more Christians in the field of science. Why? Because we want facts and figures that are accurate, that aren't rooted in a political agenda. Oh, and by the way, We also need Christian landscapers, Christian repairmen, Christian entrepreneurs, Christian athletic coaches, Christian computer software designers, Christian homemakers, Christian carpenters, Christian construction builders, Christian shopkeepers, Christian architects. The list goes on. In short, we are to get married, have a lot of kids, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, send them off to get a good education so they get a good job, so they're faithful, business as usual, and they do the same thing and send people out into the world to disseminate the word of God. That's how the kingdom grows. It's how the kingdom grows. It's the generational approach. It's how the kingdom grows. We aren't to seek immediate results. We're to trust the Lord. What are the processes set in place for the expansion of God's kingdom? Here it is. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I'll utter dark sayings from of old. Things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. That's the work of the kingdom of God. We shine as lights. Matthew 5, verses 15 and 16 so the world may see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. We live forth the law. Law is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We don't seek escape from this world or give up on this world by hiding behind some rapture theology. 
We're steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. To the degree that we're faithful is, it, is to, the degree, to the degree that we have faith. We work, we plant, we rest, we sleep, we don't look for immediate results, and we do it generationally. It's what God calls the church to. Many of you know that um, I'm on the professional staff for a soccer training academy. One of the things I love to do is train individual players because what you can do is you can assess their strengths and their weaknesses and you can tailor a session that fix, fixes whatever their weaknesses are. This past Friday, I trained a, a kid that I've trained and coached for two years and uh, I worked him so hard that um, he threw up five times. And uh, we're taking him to the car and his dad's smiling really big. Proud of you, son, you threw up five times. Because those of you who don't play sports, you'll understand that if you vomit in training, that's a sign that you're working hard. Hydrate, take a nap, you'll be okay. You'll get over it. But then his dad suddenly changed the conversation and uh, began to become a spiritual conversation, which I've had with his father and the mother and the son many, many, many times. He said, you know what? So I just want you to know that, that my son is reading his Bible every night. I said, really? He said, yeah. So I said, I won't say the boy's name. I said, well, what are you reading? He said, coach, I'm reading the Gospel of John every single night before I go to bed. My Bible sits on my bedside table, and I'm reading the Gospel of John. Two years worth of witnessing to this family, to this kid, the most unlikely kid you would ever imagine to be reading his Bible. There is no gospel influence in his life. Well, I didn't uh, pull YouTube up on my phone and start playing just as I am and ask him to recite the sinner's prayer and demand that he be in church this Sunday. You know why? Because I'm in it for the long game. This is business as usual. You plant, you sow the word, you wait, you watch God work. You live a consistent life according to the law of God so that people ask you to give the hope that is within you and you do that with gentleness and respect and urgency. But the power is in the Word. It's not in us. It's not in us to grow the kingdom, to grow this church. We're steadfast, immovable. We abound in the work of the Lord, knowing our labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's the fruit of the kingdom. That's the fruit of the citizens of the kingdom. We're absorbed in the proclamation of the message of the kingdom, pondering about the meaning of the kingdom, preoccupation with the ministry of the kingdom, and patience in the manifestation of the kingdom. And then we can rest on the pillow of God's sovereignty, knowing that He's in charge. His kingdom will come. His will will be done in this world. And we can smile and praise the Lord for that. Let us pray. Father, thank You for these parables that our Lord gives to us that help us see the significance of the growth of your kingdom, the power of your kingdom. Uh, Lord, we're struck with how small-minded we are at times in thinking that we have to have immediate results, thinking that we're going to see all the fruit of all of our labor in this life, and if we don't, then somehow we're failures. We must trust you. We must trust that you are in control of all of these things. And Lord, we thank you that indeed you are in control of all things. Um, Lord, we ask that you would now help us as we turn to the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray that, Lord, these emblems that represent your body and your blood would be a, a testimony to our hearts to confirm within us our faith in Christ, to provide encouragement for us. Lord, we know that this is not literally the body and the blood of our Lord. Lord, these are emblems. But we thank you for these emblems because they testify to us of your power and of your might to come into this world and to rescue sinners from Satan's dark kingdom. We thank you for that. And Father, we ask that you would bless us as we partake of this feast. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.